certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? WA gripped by fear. All members of Western Australia have got a responsibility because these are our daughters and sisters. Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. It was a time when an entire city was gripped with fear. A serial killer on the loose, abducting young women from a buzzing and popular night spot. Hi and welcome to this bonus episode of Claremont in Conversation. I'm Natalie Bongiolo and in the studio with criminal lawyer Damien Cripps and Australia's most experienced court reporter, (laughs) Alison Fan. (laughs) (laughs) Ali, before these murders in the late 1990s, how would you have described Claremont back then? Claremont was a very safe Um, neighbourhood. It was a very conservative neighbourhood and a very affluent neighbourhood. Just down the road you had Millionaire's Row where you had Australia's richest families Mm -hmm. living. You had the Alan Bond, Kerry Stokes, Gina Reinhart, Lang Hancock, all living within a few blocks away. Everybody knew everybody. There were mainly three private, four private schools in the area. You felt very, very safe going into Claremont and there was absolutely no fear of anything of the outside world touching it. And it was a, um, you know, it's quite close to the beach, so there's a lot of pubs by the beachside, and there's this little strip, which is a really vibrant night spot, and it's where all sorts of people congregate, not just people from um, who lived in the area, but, but everybody went there and, and went to the pubs and the clubs, and it was really popular. John Sankin turned that area into a very trendy area. He had both the Continental and the Club Bayview, which he started up, which was quite different from anything you... you Northbridge, you had Northbridge, but then you had this very trendy Club Bayview, which you could go to at two in the morning and stay there. And it drew a lot of people into Claremont. But again, it was always regarded as a very safe um, college type atmosphere, kids walking up and down Bayview Terrace. And unlike Northbridge, which was starting to gain a bit of a rough reputation, you felt safe in Claremont. Damien, were you out pubbing and clubbing in Claremont back then? Um, Well, I grew up... Um, outside of the city but when, once I'd moved to the city I was across the river in Applecross uh, mm. in the Applecross area was where I was living at the time which uh, I'd say Ali wasn't such a different sort of area it was quite affluent and there was yeah. a lot of um, well-to-do people in that area and what we would do me and all my friends we would venture to Fremantle or to Perth but it was interesting when I was just listening to Ali then I recall uh, specifically recall that um, Tuesdays and Fridays for some reason, we would end up in Claremont. Yeah. I don't know why yes. that is. If you think where Applecross geographically is located, yes. it's quite a ta- taxi-wise, it's quite a, a height to get around there. But I remember that there was a great band that played at the Continental called the Never Never that we religiously went on Tuesday nights to see. And then I think that the Club Bayview had a great reputation Friday and Saturday nights. So there was this magnificent draw to that area from yeah. all over the city. And, and, and it was a great night out. It really yeah. was. And so, you could bump into all sorts of people, couldn't you? You know, if you went to Claremont, you could bump into uni students. There were travellers, you know, footballers. Um, footballers, you know, especially down at Club Bayview. Footballers particularly yes. would hang out at Club Bayview. If you wanted to spot an Eagles player, that's where you would go. <laughs> but I remember too, now you've just brought something back. They had what they called suits night on a Friday where the suits, the so-called young lawyers and professionals used to come down there. So others who didn't want to mix with the suits guy wouldn't go on a Friday <laughs> or Thursday. I remember there was this 
specific night. Yes, yeah, subsets yeah, of because when you would go. Yeah, well, both my sons are, were in their 20s and so they were there every other night. So just to put people in the picture who aren't from Western Australia, Claremont is in the western suburbs on the coast and if you were to head further south, um, you know, 10, 10 minutes, you would hit Fremantle, Fremantle and then across the river to the other side, if you headed backwards, you'd be heading east and that would take you to Applecross and, and sort of heading to the eastern suburbs out there. So just that's where it is uh, location-wise. And now, of course, it's become the scene of one of the worst uh, serial killings in the world. So it really changed, I guess, in 1996 Mm. when Sarah disappeared. Um, Do you recall that event, Ali? Oh, totally. Um, It became a a very fearful place. It became a fearful place for the parents. I don't think it changed much for those clubbing there because I remember the kids would come around to our place and then they'd go down in a group and then they'd come back and crash there and I thought the girls didn't seem to worry about it but that no. that's an age where they they think it's probably as risky as being hit by a comet you know they just don't worry about stuff like that yeah. the parents were totally spooked older women were spooked they thought they were going to get snatched off the streets of Claremont and um, it did it was just a paranoia just whole feeling it changed the neighbourhood completely. And uh, since then, it's now still known as Claremont has now got a different intonation as yeah. far as what, what yeah. it means. Yeah. Do, do you my, remember my, my that re- time? Well, my recollection is a little bit different in that uh, perhaps I was coming from the other side of the river. I, I recall that um, if it, when these incidents had taken place, it going out remained the same for me and my friends. We yes. still would go yeah. out and we'd... Um, behave in the same way but I think as I might have discussed um, with you previously Nat that I certainly recall thinking momentarily albeit that from time to time I could potentially be viewed as somebody who was Mm. a potential perpetrator of those people going missing but I mean at that time I want to say I was 18 or 19 it could be the case that I was 23 (laughs) or 24 Um, and and I, I mean look I was uh, back then, I was a very chatty person, and I was—I would talk to people on a whim on the street, in a club, at an ATM, and I don't think that ever changed for me. But I certainly yeah. can um, appreciate what Ellie's saying—that it did change for a lot of people. Only the older people. I don't think it changed for your generation at all, because they were still clubbing. Girls were still walking around. In fact, I remember uh, one of my son's girlfriends coming back, and I thought the only reason you haven't been picked up is because they think you're a police trap because she was walking around hitchhiking yeah. with her shoes off wandering down at two in the morning down Claremont they didn't care at all the kids yeah. at that age they're invincible at that age well I was in my mid-20s at the time and my friends lived in that area I didn't live in the area I lived up in the hills but like you were saying you know a 45 you minute trip down there. all the way to yep. Club Bayview um, and I remember still going there it didn't stop me going there but I was scared and I was were worried yeah, yeah definitely and I was terrified about catching a taxi Yes, because that was because the police brought the taxi industry into it all by where they're calling them forward to give their DNA. And I keep going on and on about this podcast, but if they'd only mentioned Telstra, that um, you would have immediately been alerted to a white van with a Telstra. Everybody who drove a white van, and you're talking about as a guy, I know people were picked up left and right. That's why there's such widespread interest. So many guys in their 20s that drove a white van were stopped and questioned. Yeah. So this wonderful little city of ours, that people who live here, we all love it so much, and... um, 
people around the globe come to know Perth for different reasons. They travel here, they, they have a story, they see a movie, mm. whatever the case may be. But one thing that I think stamps a Perth person is that we're so friendly. We're always so forward yes. to talk to people. And, and when, whenever I travel, um, I, and if I run into someone and I speak to them about their encounters with Perth, they always say that the Perth people are extremely friendly. Um, and, and it's interesting hear, hearing you ladies discuss that, you know, especially now you say that it was a bit different for you at, around that time coming down into yeah. the area because you were a bit um, reluctant to travel in the taxi or whatever. And I wonder whether how much that had an impact on the persona of Perth people yeah. globally at that time. Like I said, I don't think it affected me. I was pretty happy to keep talking and chatting away, but I'm sure a lot of people, it actually did draw them back a little bit. Yeah, I think so. And, and it was just that sense of... You know, it went from being a very safe place where you could just walk around any time of the day or night, you never thought anything of it, to this place where, you know, if my girlfriend decided she was going to leave the club, well, I'm grabbing her arm and saying, no, 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 we've all got to leave together. We're going together. And I remember always feeling like I then needed to be in a pack for safety and I would never have then, after that, walked off on my own because I was worried. Do you think that it... Do you think given your experience in journalism and your working in the media industry, do you think that that changed your view of the way you could conduct yourself in public and went out and about forever? Um, not really. It was almost like this, because I wasn't in the media back then, but it was almost like this, it was like Claremont had become this bubble. And I probably would have gone to Northbridge, jumped in a cab and gone home by myself from Northbridge. It was Claremont that was the concern. Yeah, I, I think also, too, um, people were trying to work out what sort of a car would these girls get into uh, without hesitating. Uh, they obviously wouldn't get into somebody that, that it looked, you know, freakish or scary. And so that's why the, they, everyone said, oh, well, a taxi is the one thing you jump into regardless without, of driving, without, without thought, even thinking. Without and that was thought. why the taxi industry uh, came under great suspicion at the time. There was a real change... Um, not long after these girls had gone missing, in that um, Northbridge became popular. Yeah. And, and you, obviously you can't pinpoint the fact that um, these this had anything to do with the downturn perhaps in Claremont, but there was certainly around the 2000s mm. an increase in the popularity of Northbridge as a, as a night spot. Yeah. That's right. Yes, absolutely. And I think it wasn't just for our generation. So, um, you know, people from that time, obviously they then uh, passed those fears onto their kids. So you have these young people today who, you know, prior to hearing about an arrest and hearing much about Claremont, also had this notion and, and a sense of, you know, well, if you're going to Claremont for the night, you better be, you better be careful. And this is decades later. Well, those, those clubs are no longer there. The Conti or, or Claremont's taken on a completely different look yeah, now. Uh, Club Bayview's not there. Well, it's, so it's there, but it's, got a, it's a different name. Yes, but it doesn't have the same attraction. No. Um, they are going into Northbridge. It's still a good night spot. It's a fantastic I'm night there spot. every night. <laughs> <laughs> not taking me off yeah. the street. The, the restaurants, the bars, the people, it was, it, it's a great night spot. But as you said, Nat, you put um, a story or a, an environment like this into people's psyche, it will actually have an impact, well, understandably, an impact on how, That's they, right. how they move and, and um, travel through a city. And I think, um, I mean, the media campaigns or, or the police campaigns and, um, you know, celebrities who were, were 
warning people, you know, Lisa McCune at the time. Oh, that was very heavy, yes. Um, um, Isla Fisher, there was mm. even Kate Sobrano at one point, and there was these TV advertisements, wasn't there, where they were saying, you know, trust your head or something along those lines, don't take risks. Do you remember Lisa McCune's yes, TV yes. commercial? And the, and they, but their messages that... Um, they were at the time, though, right at the very time. Yes, they? yes. And, and they stand, they stand the test of time. I mean, it's not a bad warning to to heed to people on any day. You know, just use your head about what you're going to do. Um, and it, and that's by no means an insinuation that the, these girls that have gone missing weren't using their head. I mean, no. we're living in a different time. Um, I got into cars with people all of the time. Yeah, I hitchhiked if I needed to go and see my parents in Northampton. I would walk out to not walk. I'd get out to Midland and I'd stand on the highway. It was a different time. I would never do that now. It's just a completely different time, wasn't it? Yeah. Ali, you were, at the time, um, you worked, you know, extensively on these cases. Um, You were quite close to the police. You were quite close to the families. What was it like... Uh, in that situation back then? Oh, traumatic, especially with the Spears family. Um, He never gave up looking. And then the Glennon family, especially uh, Dennis Glennon, was very, very proactive after Kira was found murdered. He poured money into making Claremont a safer place. He made sure that the council, he took on the council, um, that they put in more lighting, uh, more security cameras. He poured money into the police investigation in various ways. Um, Very, very proactive in trying to change Mm. the whole environment of Claremont. I think he still said to me just not long ago, he still can't drive through Claremont. Yeah. Um, It's just somewhere that you... It's, he lives in Mosman Park. He, he used to work in the city. He said he still can't drive through that area. And I don't think anybody drives without looking at that particular corner where you are now identifying exactly where they disappeared from. It's, was, it's totally changed the area. As I said, it was a very college. Um, you had private schools. Everybody vaguely knew everybody and felt safe there. And that completely changed. Yeah. But um, the Dennis, Dennis Glennon was very, very... Um, proactive in in changing that he that at one stage we had a Claremont mayor um, under suspicion but he made sure that everything was made safer in Claremont um, and that was the last of it I mean we we never heard anymore after no. that which is why of course that public servant who was under yes. suspicion um, distracted I think the investigation completely and you, of course, you know, had a very extensive and lengthy interview with him. He invited you in. Yes. And you came away with a really strong yes. sense. Yes. yes. He was definitely odd, but a very trusting, submissive person who was anxious to talk about um, everything, including his lie detector uh, yeah. thing that he took. And he said, well, they asked me a question, have I hurt anybody? And I had to say, yes, I hurt my six-year-old sister when we were you know, or brother when we were kids. So, And we're just talking here open. about um, Lance Williams, Lance Williams yes. who was a public servant. Police focused their attention on him. Um, and this Followed was from, him 24-7. for many years. That's right. They parked across the road from mm. his house. They would follow him to work. They'd follow him back from work. You know, he really was hounded for many, many years. And I think, too, some of the descriptions we're hearing now about various people who got into a white sedan and had a lift could have been Lance Williams because he was a very odd mm. um, compulsive person and he does uh, he did admit to driving around Claremont trying to look for women who he thought were in danger and actually driving them yes. places 
Ali, just um, Nat spiked my memory about something. I, I, I was aware that you had interviewed Mr. Williams at, at extensively, um, and and it serves as a great reminder to us um, that we are innocent until proven guilty. Totally, yeah. And we have to keep going back to that. We keep harping on it. And if you go and sit in a court case, you will hear judges and lawyers harp on about it. Um, given the, of your given your interaction with Mr. Williams at the time, and the, and the, the time that has passed now does it does it make you cautious about your view of the accused the current accused man does it affect your your i'm starting to look at things like a defense lawyer would (laughs) beyond reasonable doubt and so far i have not seen anything that actually puts bradley edwards at the scene we've had varying descriptions of cars right from one Mm. extreme to the other to yesterday a ford a ute with a canopy over the top from yes. the same time as an eyewitness and he insists that there was someone there holding a tailgate. Uh, we, we are now waiting for the uh, forensic, the DNA, but at the moment, as they would say, there is certainly no smoking gun. No. And um, even though I think a jury might, might think differently because they would be influenced um, by the rape case, which was very, very violent, quite horrific. But looking at this case yeah. separately... Um, there's nothing that I see there um, so, as yet. So, Ali, just in relation to that, a lot of the listeners would be interested, I think, given that it's that you're a person who in- interviewed Lance and was working so close at hand at the time back then, with all that you've just explained then about what your thoughts are just at the moment, do you think that they would have been different had we not had the Lance Williams experience back in 1997? No. No, you, so, so because it's interesting, as I said, mm. it's a constant reminder to us that there are people that get put in the firing line of suspicion. Well, if they start to, it's a bit like Mallard. I mean, he gives a scenario of what he thought the killer would do. Now, police are looking at something black and white. Somebody says, I think this is how they would do it, and that, yeah. they take it. And Lance Williams did admit to driving around at one time 60 times. Yes. Mm. around. Well, police are going to see that as black and white. That's <laughs> one and one. He's driving around. He's picking up women. Hello. He has to be, and he's, it was, he was an unusual character. So you can see the way a policeman would look at that. Um, and so, but, and that's, that's the way it is. Um, and we've seen it with a lot of other cases too. Now, up until now, if we hadn't heard these rape details and you looked at purely on someone who was being accused and had, did not know the details about this horrific rape, you might look at it quite differently. And Ali, Lance Williams died, um, passed away just... From cancer a couple of years ago, yes. Uh, It was actually after Bradley Edwards was charged because I remember thinking, oh, at least he knows that it was somebody else that's been charged after all of this time. yeah. Um, So he he was a very simple person. Had you ever caught caught up with him? Did you see Mr Williams after... Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. He was always very open and childlike. Mm. Um, in in a way, um, certainly he wanted me to stay. As I said, we stayed for a few hours. Well, I ran out of things to talk about. After <laughs> he wanted to talk about the sunset, very very um, compulsive. Like I moved the paper, he moved it back again. That sort yeah. of thing. Very um, more sort of like a compulsive disorder. But you kept Autistic. checking in on him for. Oh, we did. For years, and he was. He never, yes, he did. And he quite happily answered questions. And again, um, he. I once said to him, "But aren't you upset about these?" Police charge. He's oh no, they're doing their job. So well, he was quite yeah open it's, and it's a positive yeah. outlook. Totally, isn't it? positive totally outlook. accepting. And Ali, did you keep in contact with um, the victims' families over the years as well? Would they sometimes call you, or you would call them when when little things would pop up? Uh, 
Um, only the Glennons. Yeah. Um, Spears, um, we did for uh, very intensively for that first year, and then um, I think it was getting too too hard, much. Too much. There, there becomes a point when there's not much more to say. No, isn't there? Yeah. no. And I think he was wanting us to keep the story alive, and I do understand that. But there was a mm. point when I'm saying we can't keep running this every night. We can, and you know, and we'd, we'd find other ways for him to to keep it alive by. M- putting onto magazines and so forth but yeah. it was such a long time and such a cold case it does drift away so and of course the tragedy and other things for the take Spears over yeah Sarah has never been never, found no. so for, for that family it's extraordinarily difficult do, do you ladies think that the conversation in Western Australia has continued about the Claremont serial killers yeah, yes so the question what my question is prior to 2016 when Mr Edwards was charged is, is it your view that the people of Western Australia had continued that conversation yes, going absolutely. for 20 years? And people outside will still say what's happened with what's the Claremont. Yeah. Because it involved not only just the Claremont community, it involved everyone who drove a white mm. van, yes. everybody who had kids in the area, the whole taxi industry. They're all, you know, well, we all yeah. gave our DNA. That involved thousands of people. And so you... It, yeah. it has been a very intriguing case that's kept alive all over the world. In fact, the calls that we're getting are people who were living in yes. Claremont and now, in fact, the witnesses are all living elsewhere mm. and still yeah. want to know what happened. And this is why, I mean, we've got, you know, thousands of people who are listening from the United States and listening from the United Kingdom because they've moved and they've taken that story with them. They and know the victims, they yeah, were that's friends, right. they went to the same school, they went to, yeah. And really, for, for decades, we have waited for details haven't we you know and it's very unusual for a cold case such as this one to suddenly yes. come about it's something like you'd, you'd see on Mindhunter or one of these programs but for suddenly so many years later yeah for it to very very it's extraordinary surreal. it's actually surreal, it and, is surreal. And, and the point that I was making before is to have that Lance Williams experience yeah where you mm. had a man with the finger pointed directly at him be you know be, um completely not charged and, and walked they away They never from charged him. him. In fact, sometimes I think maybe it was the media that was chasing him because the police never, ever acknowledged that he was a suspect. They just, they wouldn't comment at all. But yeah. we saw that car parked very openly every day yes. on the main road down to the beach, sitting quite openly. And then they actually put, um, they went in and ripped the carpet up and put microphones in. But his parents just sort of talked about it yes, like oh yes. this is what you do and this is what police do and it was know. interesting though because people had a take on that and and some people um had this mind that well since they've been tailing him since they've been on surveillance nothing, nothing else has happened mm. it must have been him they just mm. can't pin it no and so this was sort of one exactly. of the things that people would say oh for many many years exactly um and on that point um, that one of the things that um, resonates with me coming into the Christmas break is that um, <clears throat> it's just, and it's nothing to do with Mr. Edwards, but it did just stop. So these three mm. people went missing. That's right. And then it just stopped. Well, the prosecution says that's because he then resumed a normally happy life because the prosecution's case is that um, Bradley Edwards is a Jekyll and Hyde, that to his colleagues and to his friends, he's placid, he's unassuming, he doesn't drink that much, very, very um, even-tempered man. Yet the prosecution says when something is a glitch in his personal life, he turns the other way and becomes a monster, a sex monster and a, and a rapist and a possible killer. That's what their case is. So, so then what they would be saying is that since the last of those three women went he's missing. resumed a normal everything form. was perfect in mm. his life well that, that that's that's well he does had, anyone live in perfection well, for that amount of time 
as well, yeah. Well, somebody has. Well, there hasn't been any that we know of. I mean, they're probably they. We don't know. I mean, there are, have no. other women have gone missing, but there's not been. Well, of course. Yeah. From other areas that yes. maybe hasn't been attributed to this. Of course, there's all those we don't know. possibilities. Yeah. Isn't there? there have been like the Julie Cutler was mentioned, and there That's are other right. things that have been mentioned. Yeah. But it was like with the Burnies when they were going through. They, they. I remember someone, a policeman, saying that he'd gone down to David Burney and said, "Did you do this?" And David Burney said, "I can." cop it if you want to it doesn't mean anything to me but then you'll have a cold-blooded killer out there this was the words of david burney yeah. the great the serial killers of that shot perth previously so um you don't know whether there are others linked Could, are you still um do you still spend a fair bit of time in the claremont area every day and how do you <laughs> feel there these days um, it's just my neighborhood i've never felt any different because when i wasn't i felt differently when my kids were down there yeah but no it's my local area i've lived there my entire life yeah, well, and and of course it brings us to where we are, where we are now, and you know this extraordinary situation. And as we keep saying in this podcast, there is nothing ordinary about this. No, and Not more to come, huge yes. amount to come, and that's where it's going to lie with the DNA and uh, the defence has been very uh, quiet up until now, except when they did a quite an intensive grilling yesterday with the police evidence about how things were stored, how they were kept. Uh, photographed, blogged, and there were some little inconsistencies. A, a there precursor into the new year, yes, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you both for your personal insights. And I know for a lot of people, um, people particularly who lived in Western Australia, for some reason this case and this trial, it does feel personal to everybody. We all feel like we have a link and we all feel like we have a, a really valid vested interest in it. So I think that's why people are just you know, so keen for any kind of detail that they can get their hands on. So thank you both for sharing um, your thoughts on what it was like back then and how times have changed in Claremont. So we'll be back on the 6th of January when the trial resumes. We will. And so a short Christmas break for us. We'll be back then. And um, in the meantime, just keep an ear out or an eye out because we will be dropping some bonus uh, episodes of Claremont in Conversation and we will see you back in the new year. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bonjolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au.